0: Now this morning we are looking at the uh, commemoration of the Lord's Supper and you'll have a handout there beside you. We're going to read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in chapter 11. so we're reading together at uh, first Corinthians chapter 10 at verse 14 verse 14 therefore my beloved flee from idolatry I speak as to wise men judge for yourselves what I say The cup of blessing which we bless is not, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now coming to chapter 11 at verse 17, which is the... Parallel passage to what we read in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke on the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, because since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must be also factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognised among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now he actually comes to where he speaks about the actual institution of the Lord's Supper. In that first section he's been talking about the way they have actually behaved in coming together as a church. Now he tells them very clearly what the institution of the Lord's Supper involves. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For well, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another... And if anyone is hungry, let them eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So now, the commemoration of the Lord's Supper, and you will see that I have put it under three headings. The commemoration of the Lord's Supper, the whole idea of commemoration means, of course, that we are coming together to, mem- to, to to understand that we are here recognizing a memorial to our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the memorial of the dead, by the way, but the memorial of the living who did die. So three things are said when it was instituted. It was instituted by our Lord's plain command. We're going to have a good look at that for for a time. It involves a personal demand on you and me, and it assures us of our future hope in Christ, which I was so delighted to see coming through in the worship this morning, until he comes. (coughs) Now then, let's look at its institution. He actually said that they were to eat of this bread and drink of this cup and he actually says it in terms of a command, by the way. Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This covers the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I realize I've read to you deliberately from the new King James. as kept to the older King James in sounding as though it was a kind of a personal request. I'm going to show to you very shortly that it's a plain command. It's not just a personal request. It's a plain command that's obligated to us. And people who seriously take the the Lord's Supper as a central act of the church's witness, hear from their Lord coming down the centuries, do this, do this. And they know that Jesus actually said it. Well, now, let's look at what we're talking about in terms of commemoration. a so personal participation. All of us partake of that bread and partake of that wine. So it's a united act, and yet it's an individual act. And we are actually personal participants. It's, it's partaking of the bread and the wine personally, but it's also partaking of the bread and wine communally. We're doing this in a sense that we are one bread and one body. So any idea of a kind of rank individualism has no part in the Lord's Supper. That we do take part individually is true, but it doesn't give us any any kind of what I call uh, social airs that would kind of promote us as the best of the best. As a matter of fact, as our brother reminded us before he broke bread this morning, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's not just being said by the way of sinners out there. It's it's dealing with sinners in here. Now, it's a total recollection we are to remember him. And I'm going to show shortly that it doesn't mean just that you don't forget him. It means you don't forsake him. This Lord's Supper is a, is a time of coming together in sworn, avowed allegiance to Jesus Christ. Let's not have any ideas in our minds that we're coming here just because it's an option. It, we are obligated to actually remember him so we will not forget him nor forsake him. Note, too, that it, uh, it actually calls for a communal appreciation. We discern the body, and that could mean either his body as to that which appertains to Christ personally, or it could mean that we discern the body, that is, the church, which is his body. I rather favour the second view, as a matter of fact, that it is we are discerning the body corporate. We are not divided, all one body we. And we're coming together as a united congregation to remember him and swear allegiance to him. Now, coming on, as to its centrality... Now, quite clearly, it was upon the first day of the week, whether in Acts 20 or in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul uses the phrase, when you come together, 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 six times. And he's expecting that the church will come together and will gather to the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, it was regular. It was every week and therefore it was constant. And I hear people still trying to beat that hollow drum. You know, you just do it by habit. I assure you that the Lord's Supper is to be done by habit. And any idea that it should be critiqued because it's habitual, you better quick forget because there are good habits as well as bad ones, aren't there? You know that. I know that. And this is a good habit that we come habitually on the first day of the week to commemorate the Lord's supper, And why is it a good habit? It means that we have to get up out of our beds and come to church and come together with the Lord's people and to swear allegiance to him. No questions about it. And the very fact that you have to mobilize yourself, by the way, this is one reason why some of our old believers last the distance, because they get out of their homes and therefore they can't get involved in pity party patter. They, they've got to move. One of the things they tell us as we age is we've got to keep mobile. And one of the best ways for, for Christians to keep mobile is to come to where the Lord's name is honored. And it keeps you young, and it keeps you fresh, and it keeps you good. So you who are older here this morning, and I'm suddenly realised that I've joined your ranks. It's good to me. It was good when they said to me, let us go on to the Lord's house. Now, it was special to the first day. Now, I know that some of us as brethren have been castigated by certain cruel people that you know you fellows talk about the Lord's day in which you keep the Lord's supper. Well, I like to feel that I have one day that is specially set aside for him. I don't know about you, I mean, some of us now that we've got, you you go into some shops now, we're open 24-7. Well, you're saying in your heart, I'm closed to that business because I've got another business that I'm attending to, it's the Lord's business on the Lord's day to participate in the Lord's supper." And I have suggested to you that it was on the Lord's Day and kept by the Lord's people in commemorating the Lord's Supper. I think that's a very good thing. And I think it's something that we should celebrate. I think it's something we we should be not selfishly proud about, but at least feeling that we are, as the Lord's people, really and truly swearing allegiance to him and to them. Now, coming on, the central act, they came together. It was a regular time, the first day of the week. And the reason is given, by the way, that they came together to break bread. Now, you can see that there are different actual names given to the Lord's Supper. They came together to break bread. This meant that they came together to fellowship with one another and to fellowship with the living Christ. I would feel very disappointed if you came here this morning and you did not address our Lord in any shape or form while you were sitting in your seat or standing up. You see, we're not only in fellowship with one another, we're in fellowship with our Lord and he's a living Lord. So we're not talking about fellowshipping with someone who's dead. We're talking about fellowshipping with someone who is very gloriously alive. That's what we're doing. And now, it's also obvious from Acts 20 and also from 1 Corinthians and other passages that there was teaching given at the Lord's Supper. Oh, by the way, there was preaching too. If you read with me this morning, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim. It's the normal word for preaching. Preaching at the Lord's Supper? I said last week, that don't you think that everybody seated here is necessarily a Christian? And I gave you a case in this very Assembly's history where there were people sitting in the congregation who you all thought were Christians but were only exposed when the Gospel was truly preached. Now coming on, what's the focus of the Lord's Supper? It's focused on Christ, person and work. I remember asking Colin Graham, who was one of our best evangelists, who's gone to be with his Lord now, I asked him on one occasion when I was a very much younger man, I said to him, now, Brother Colin, you're teaching us about evangelism. How are we saved? Are we saved through faith in the person of Christ or saved through the work of Christ? Now, he knew that I was a thinking young fellow and so it was a loaded question, as we say, and it was. It was. But um, he stopped for a moment and then he said, we must be saved through the person of Christ. We trust in him. But he said, because he realized that I was waiting for him, but he said, you can't separate the person from the work. You cannot. It's because of who he is that he did what he did. And I was thinking in the Lord's Supper this morning, that you know, Lord, you have done something for us we could never do for ourselves. There's not one of us that could have done anything to save ourselves. And you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And why did he do it? Because of who he is. He did what he did. Now then, you will notice... That in the what we've been reading this morning, this do, and I've heard it so often over the years that you know we are responding to Christ's personal request, and it's His love request to us that we be here. Now I don't doubt that we've come out of love, but don't you think that love can't be can't be actually commanded? As I've been saying to a young fella just this last few days don't you fret yourself. It doesn't say, fiancés love your fiancés. It just simply says, husbands love your wives. Now, that's a command. And if you say, fancy husbands being told to love their wives, I think every husband should be told that, me included. And by the way, the word love there is not the word for eros or even the word for, for, for uh, uh, affection, it's the word agape, which means, of course, husband sacrifice for your wife. Does every husband need to hear that? I'll tell you, we all do, and me particularly. Oh, yes. Now then, if you look very closely at the Greek, and most of us can't, but if you do, you'll find that it's not this do, it's do this in remembrance of me, do this in remembrance of me. It's a command given to us to act on. Now one of the problems of the new King james version was, and for the old King james version, it was brought it was actually translated by Church of England clergymen who were very used to the liturgy and all the rest and and were also very used to the to the British way of of speaking, you know very abstractly, very obliquely, very kind of um, You couldn't say to anyone, you've got to do this. You would say, now, do you think it would be a good idea if you do this? You see, that's the English way. And by the way, we cottoned on to that. We're very much the same way. We don't like being told directly, you should do this. I think there's a good few Christians as we are that still feel that way. We don't like someone laying it on the line to us. We don't. It gets at our craw and it gets stuck in there. And we feel quite uncomfortable about it. We would rather people were kind of obliquely kind of cajoling us to do something. I can see by some of your faces that you were saying yes to that, To what I am saying. You're very used to this. You, This is your manner of life. This is the way you actually function. But if you come to the New Testament, there are 214 imperative commandments in the New Testament. Most of us can't see them because in the authorised version they were put slightly obliquely and we kind of feel that it was almost like all the time requesting, requesting, requesting. But it's just not so. They were laying, being laid on the line. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, says Paul to the Ephesians, and he's telling them point blank that they're not to grieve the Holy Spirit by what they say and by what they do. Well, here we've got a plain command, not just a personal quest do this in remembrance of me. Now, I have put it in the next one that we're coming to we're not only, uh, we do not allow ourselves to forget him in obeying the command and a vivid recall of who he is and what he's done, nor must we allow ourselves to forsake him in this covenant supper. You see, one of the problems that we have in, the, in our assemblies has been this, that we think of the Lord's Supper only in memorial terms. We think we, we've got to keep him in memory and, and so forth and so far and good enough, but that's not what is just exactly being said in this passage. This cup that we give thanks for, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And did we not read this morning? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Fancy that now. There's a covenant being instituted in this Lord's Supper, a new covenant. A covenant written in precious blood and written into the human heart by the Holy Spirit. And we Christians have got to realize that the Lord's Supper is not only just a memorial in the sense of being just kept in memory alone. It is a covenant that we're keeping with the risen Christ. He ratified it in his precious blood. So you're coming here, you're not only coming here to keep him in memory, you're coming here, and so am I, to keep covenant with him. Now, what about that now? And I remember Mr. Robert All before he died, he laid it on the line very strongly in one service that I was in, that we had kept the Lord's Supper as a memorial and forgotten that it is underlined and undergirded by a covenant, a covenant of precious blood. So sacred is it and so sure is it that we cannot deny it. We can but affirm it and say, yes, Lord, you have kept covenant for me and I now must keep covenant with you. All right? So what are we doing? We are pledging our loyalty to him in a covenant loyalty. When we receive what Christ did for us, we recognize by the Holy Spirit ratifying it in our hearts that this covenant that he signed and sealed with his precious blood so so absolutely and so eternally and so finally involves me and involves you. If you're a believer, you are actually part of the new covenant community. And in that, we have a ratification that's so deep and so true, we cannot deny it. We can but affirm it. When he shed his precious blood, he established an eternal covenant that's ever new, that means it's ever fresh, and it will never be outdated and never outmoded. It is forever. And why are we going to sing later, he and I and I, that bright glory one deep joy shall share, mine to be forever with him, his that I am there, is that that new covenant was ratified by blood and it would never be able to be annulled. Now, coming on. What are we doing in the Lord's Supper? Well, we're preaching, that's for sure. We are preaching no gospel like this feast spread for your church by thee, no prophet nor evangelist, preach the glad news so free. Now in the days of the New Testament there were people being converted at the Lord's Supper. There are occasions that I know of where people have been converted in New Zealand at the Lord's Supper. I would like to see a lot more of them being converted at the Lord's Supper. So patently and plainly portrayed that people sitting in the congregation say I'm a sinner and I need a savior and Jesus who you are proclaiming to me is just the savior that I need wouldn't it be wonderful if you found out that this morning someone in this congregation had come to faith because they realized that Jesus Christ was alone their savior See, the Spirit's work in the heart is to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, what's the sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting the heart of? Because they believe not in me. And true conviction of the Holy Spirit in the heart is going to convict a person they need a Savior and they're going to be convicted and convinced that the Savior they need is Jesus. He alone can save them. And I would like to feel that we were more pro-witness in our service, actually. Sure, we're worshipping God, but we're witnessing to people in the congregation. And you will know today, I'm sure you'll know today, there must be some people here who have not yet come to a living faith in a living Christ. I don't know your heart, but the Spirit of God does, I can tell you. And he will convict you and he will convince you. He will convict you of sin and convince you that Jesus alone is your Savior. Now then, it's a perpetual command too. We're only doing this until he comes. And we were saying that to ourselves this morning, and I was delighted. I thought, my word, I must be on the right wavelength this morning, Lord, if we're doing this only till he comes. And you might say, my, 2,000 years you fellows have been keeping the Lord's Supper down through the church age and down through congregation after congregation. My, word, don't you think you've really run your course? Ah, if it wasn't until he come, then we, we, could, we, could, we, we could perhaps agree to the charge. But for us, there's a rendezvous in mind. There's an end in view. We are keeping this feast until he comes. This means that we believe that he who came the first time, literally, is coming the second time, Literally. And no doubt about it, we are not talking about a Christ who suddenly disappeared and never going to reappear. We're talking about a Christ who was taken up bodily to heaven and received up into glory. But as Psalm 110 says, Sit down my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. There's an until there, too, by the way. There's about six of them through the Bible until 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 he come one of the great truths that we as assemblies held dear to our hearts was the truth of the second coming and not too long ago i sat in a church where a person had come from another church and he said I was so electrified, he said, sitting in your congregation to hear the truth of the second coming. I had lived in another church for 25 years and never heard of the second coming once. Now I'm, you've, you've really set me alight. And he gave a wonderful illustration of the second coming of Christ. One of the best illustrations I ever heard. He spoke about his father who was a salesman round the district of this particular area. And he would he would come in late on a Friday night, just as it was starting to get dark from all his trips round, and he said, My father would know that I would be waiting on such and such a corner. And he would roll up with his old Bentley with the running boards and everything else. Most of you won't remember cars that had running boards, but they did. And my father would swoop in and pick me up, and I'd stand on the running board, and we'd go down the hill to home, he said, and I knew my father had come before they did it home. And so the church is going up to join in the coming of Christ. Oh, yes. Yes. And don't you think that we teach two comings either? We only teach one. The church is going up to share in the coming. When Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives, he will have come to the world. We're going up to share in the coming. And if you say it's going to take a period of time, I'm going to say to you, the first coming took a period of time too. He came to Bethlehem, but... Quite a few years later he came to Jerusalem in a public display and left from Jerusalem and from Jerusalem he's going to return. This same Jesus that you've taken from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you saw him go. He's going to come back to the same place. His feet shall touch the Mount of Olives and how will you and I know he's come The mountains? going to be rent too. two. And see that now. 3,000 meters high, rent and two. I can tell you the Jerusalem Post will have in the, the next day Messiah has come. His name, Jesus. When I, sat, when I stood talking to a Jewish rabbi in the city of Jerusalem, and we were being given special treatment because we were pilgrims and not just tourists. And so he came to address us for about an hour and a half, and then he said, I'm going to give you time, seeing that you are so interested in all things, uh, to ask us questions. So my hand went up straight like this. I said, now, Rabbi, you have told us so many things. You have told us about returning... To the land and I said you're not very far from us you know returning Israel returning Messiah oh he said quick as a flash you got the first right but not the second See, they don't believe the Messiah has come, but that's why I'm saying to you: surprise of all surprises, when Messiah's feet touch the Mount of Olives and it's written to, they will know the Messiah for whom they've looked so long has come. And the surprise of all surprises will be: his name is Jesus. Oh, yes. Well, it's a powerful hope. We are expecting him to come. And my early brethren years, when I came into assemblies as a lad of 18, I was certainly shaken up by the fact that he could come any time, at any time, at any time, at any moment, at any moment, at any moment. He could come. That shook my whole life, I tell you. I realized that I was looking for the imminent Christ who was coming and he could come today, he could. Now then, looking further on, I want you to notice the demand it has on us, very quickly now, the revelation of sacrilege. Whoever eats this bread, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. What this means, of course, is that I come to the Lord's Supper, but I do not actually participate in it. I do not see myself as part and parcel of it. I do not see myself as actually committed to actively being involved in the Lord's Supper. What they were doing is they were having quite a party, the rich. They were they were well-filled, well-drunken, and were an absolute disgrace to the church. They gave not one help to the poor in their midst, and they were so cessated sus- sus- by their food and by their drink that the one thing that Paul does say to them, that's straight on the button, you do not keep the Lord's Supper. They said they would have, they they said they were, but they were not. And he tells them, they're an absolute disgrace. You come together not for the better, but for the worse. That's, that's, That's terrible to say that of any church meeting, by the way. But that's what's being said by the apostle. Now, I want to say just one other word there, though, while I've got a moment, and that is that if you've come and you have not committed yourself to be a participant in this Lord's Supper, then I'm going to say to you, you are bordering on the line of sacrilege. You are, because you're saying that you're coming to keep the Lord's Supper, but you are to aren't actually in any way personally involved. And I don't mean by this that you've got to be all up and talking. I mean, have you got a heart for God and for his Son that's such that in the inner communion of your heart, you are communing with the risen Christ and with the heavenly Father? You are part and parcel of the worship of this church. If I understand the Apostle rightly, I can be going through the form but without the reality and it becomes very dangerous because I can get into bad habits. I can come to the Lord's Supper but I'm absolutely impervious to what's going on. I'm just simply passing through the form. All are you? I'm going to say to you that this verse is very challenging You can be actually involved in what I have called sacrilege. Now, what must we do then? We must examine ourselves and only then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. I'm quoting now from the New Revised Standard Version, which is very good in this passage. So we examine ourselves to see whether or not There's anything between us and our brethren and sisters or anything between us and our God and and of his son that would hinder us from true worship of him and true fellowship with them. If we don't examine ourselves, then you can recognize on divine judgment for all who drink and eat without discerning the Lord's body drink judgment unto themselves. You don't see yourself in fellowship with your fellow believers and you don't see yourself in fellowship with the risen Christ. Judgment may be the result. And looking now to the next slide, for this reason, he says, many of you are weak and ill and some have died and some have slept. He tells them that there's a reason for why a number of the churches have fallen ill and have died. Now, I said, if we would judge ourselves, then we will not be judged. There has to be a question of self-judgment. One of my old teachers used to say, all judgment should begin with self-judgment and should never be passed with honours. And did you have a good look inside your own heart today as we came? Did you say, I'm in fellowship with my fellow believers and I'm in fellowship with my Lord? You can get, We can get into awful habits, by the way. Very bad habits. Habits that are not good for us as the people of God. Now, when he says we, we are judged of the Lord... We're disciplined, so we may not be condemned with the world. It means of course that the judgment that falls is a is a divine chastisement. We'll be saved, but like Lot we'll be saved as by fire. And that's an awful experience to have to pass through, I can assure you. Now coming on very quickly, what's happened at the end? They were confusing the Agape love feast with the Lord's Supper, and they'd merged the two together. Now, I notice that some churches are going back to this that we'll meet together for a, for a big Kai uh, um, meal, but we won't have a separate Lord's Supper. I take that as very dangerous, by the way. And I also take it that this passage separates them. You can come together for your meals, invite one another to your homes, but at the Lord's Supper, you've come to participate in his supper. Now, quickly now. Uh, we've got to have a communal appreciation. We're working in spirit and in truth. We're calling to mind our Saviour and remembering him and neither forgetting nor forsaking him. We recognise we're one body and discerning his body given for us and owning that we're part of his church body. Coming on. Now, lastly, ensures us of our future hope. Our keeping of the supper will end until he comes. Let's go further now because we've said a lot about that this morning and we can go past that one and come on now. We will participate as a result of this full and total participation in the Lord's Supper. We will participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. What will happen? The Lord's people will be forever with the Lord. That's why this supper will end. We will be caught up together, dead and alive. We will meet our Lord in the air. We will be forever with the Lord. Our meeting at the Lord's Supper will culminate in our united and total joyous meeting at our Lord's return. This will lead us to the celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb, looking on. Horatio Bonard, that fine Christian of a past generation wrote these words feast after feast thus comes and passes by yet passing points of that glad feast above and gives sweet foretaste of the festal joy the Lamb's great bridal feast of bliss and love that's what we're going on to absolutely I tell you and Revelation 19 says the Lamb's wife has made herself ready by saving grace alone will be there and in his clothed righteousness, we'll be there to share in all that's going to transpire. And to close now, two stanzas. He and I in that bright glory, one deep joy shall share, mine to be forever with him, his that I am there. And as a child, I learnt this other one, which I've not heard sung in assemblies. is an interesting thing. There's going to be a meeting, a meeting in the air, and how I long to see you there away beyond the sky. Such singing you will hear, never heard by mortal ear. It will be glorious, I do declare, and I can see myself as a young boy singing this last part, for God's own son will be the meeting one in that meeting in the air. Though I wasn't even a Christian. But this hymn somehow or other got into me. And I thought, my word, that's going to be a finale to end all finales. To meet him in the air and to be with him forever. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. This morning, our Father, help us to come as true participants in this supper. Help us to swear again our allegiance to our Lord. Help us to remember him and not forget him nor forsake him. Help us each to be seen to be as willing participants in this supper. And so we pray as we go to our several homes now that your good hand will be upon us and that we will know the richness of fellowship with each other but more particularly the richness of fellowship with our risen and soon coming Lord. And so we bow with thanksgiving. We do so in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.